My name is uh, Angel Menendez and I work at the NCKU. We build satellites and welcome to Formosa Files. The Taiwan History Podcast, Formosa Files, is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Frank C. Chen Foundation. Formosa Files. So I met you at another event and uh, you had someone lay out your background. Okay, so picture this, people. He's ridiculously handsome. He skydives, bungee jumps, has like 50,000 degrees in, you know, school and, and builds satellites. How do you plead? I will rather we do the thing where I undersell myself and then I surprise people when they meet me. <laughs> He's so humble. But yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's kind of like the the, the CV part of uh, myself. Yeah. What? Why? Why do you like uh, bungee jumping and jumping out of planes? You're an adrenaline junkie. I I really I don't know. I guess I was a happy kid, <laughs> and uh, then every time I will tell my parents like, "Hey, I would like to do something," and then they just say, "Oh yeah, just wait until you grow up." And eventually I grew up, and I still had all these uh, dreams. I don't know. I just enjoy the freedom, also the responsibility, because uh, once you are skydiving, you realize that I mean, of course, you need to learn how to do it. <laughs> And uh, if something goes wrong, if something fails, if you do something wrong, then it's your responsibility to... Well, if something goes wrong, it's, it, you're not really going to be held responsible because you won't be there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, like at that moment, like uh, really, there's no one else there That's to... That's right. Yeah, like you need to solve things by yourself. Mm. And uh, I don't know, that sense of responsibility and uh, of wanting to learn how to do it properly, it's, uh, that's what... It feels really, really good. So then also, you obviously love mathematics because um, mm -hmm. you've got, what, uh, several degrees and I can't even pronounce the yes, things that you've uh, studied. I started uh, doing mechatronics engineering back in Guatemala. I did three semesters and then I saw the opportunity to come to Taiwan. But at the moment, the only scholarship available was for mechanical engineering, which was uh, completely taught in English. And uh, they offer everything. Uh, the government of Taiwan, they provided everything for us to come from plane tickets to medical insurance to even books. So it was a really sweet deal. Then I decided to come. Uh, but of course, I already knew all these other things that I wanted to learn, like about circuits, about uh, electromagnetism, about programming. So I read the student manual and they had this option to do a double major degree. However, this was a separate program and then they allowed me to do it under certain conditions. First of all, this was not a program in English anymore. So I had to first learn Mandarin. <laughs> I started doing during daytime my mechanical engineering classes and at night I would go to a different university just to learn Mandarin. And we're not talking about just like conversation Mandarin. If you're learning a mechanic, yeah, yeah you've got to learn yeah, some like terms the, that are, yeah, yeah, whoa. All the signal processing. Ay, the, yeah, it was uh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially since, you know, like uh, sometimes in Tainan, some professors, like especially the, the aged ones, they will sometimes uh, have a Taiwanese pronunciation for some <laughs> Mandarin stuff. Yeah. There was a funny encounter once uh, a friend of mine and I were taking this uh, course in Mandarin. And the professor will be saying like uh, Wei Hun and Wei Hun here and Wei Hun there. And we looked at it in the dictionary, in the translator. Uh, there was nothing Wei Hun. 
And then he will write down, like, Weifen. And we were like, oh, so you mean, like, a derivative, like, uh, Weifen. And then he said, Dwe, Dwe, Weifen, Dwe, Weifen. That's when we knew it was, like, a different... Sese. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you came to this meeting that I attended and you gave a presentation about a space program. And I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I knew that Taiwan obviously had some sort of satellites in the past uh, for telecommunications, probably with, um, I don't know, uh, the U.S. or I don't know. You know, I can imagine that Taiwan had something up there already. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about doing this as a university project and launching a satellite that's about as big as... I don't know. Um. Okay, so the government of Taiwan, they they do have a, a very small budget compared to other countries, but they did start uh, uh, developing their own technology little by little. Like at first, they had some collaborations and then some experts from outside Taiwan will come and uh, kind of like uh, guide them how to build their own satellites. And little by little, since they have been learning how to do it, now more and more their satellites are more built in Taiwan, like mm. uh, completely. Speaking about the program at our university, it started because um, around the year 2000, uh, in the very early 2000s, someone developed a new standard for very, very small satellites, which are uh, made of like some cubes. And the genius about this is that not only are they small, which makes them more affordable for universities or like uh, even for some uh, small companies, then also this allows for some international collaboration because more people are able to build some systems like computers or batteries or solar panels that fit into these uh, cubic standards. And then it's just easy to collaborate or even to buy a small cubic space to put your cubic satellite inside a rocket that will later launch it into space at a very affordable price. So it's become like a global standard that people have accepted and they're going with this little, I don't know, what size uh, could we compare it to? Right. So the basic unit is uh, one unit will be 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters cube. And then you start building up from there, like two units will be two of these put together. So it will be uh, 10 by 10 by 20 centimeters. When you get to the third unit, it gets a little bit uh, bigger. But yes. still, like the, says, the one that you showed is about the size, the length of an uh, an yes. arm, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we are not firing these satellites from Taiwan. We are putting that work off to you mentioned uh, SpaceX, I believe. Yes, it's not that we only collaborate with them, but recently they have been the most affordable company. So in the past, there was some other launch that we first launched uh, the satellite into the International Space Station. And then at the International Space Station, an astronaut will take our satellite, put it in a hatch, and then open the hatch, and then it will be released into space. However, also, uh, because you need to consider the orbit. So if you launch it from the ISS, then it's going to have the same orbit as the ISS. And that orbit changes too much. So you also need to consider that we can only operate the satellite, like we can only communicate with it when the satellite is above Taiwan, like right above our antennas. Mm. And with the ISS orbit, sometimes it will be like two in the morning and then maybe like nine in the morning and then like, I don't know, four in the afternoon. And then the next day will be like four in the morning. And then if you keep shifting this uh, time schedule, then it's very, very difficult to have someone there at the, at the antenna during that time, if you know that it could be any time during the night. Now, with the orbit that we're getting from SpaceX, 
we know for sure because it's an, uh, a sun-synchronous orbit, then we know that this type of orbit always will have the satellite on top of Taiwan between 9 and 11 a.m. and between 9 and 11 p.m., which is much more manageable to, to set a schedule to have someone there at the ground station. So I remember you saying something about a first uh, attempt being a failure. I remember I used the word uh, lessons learned, <laughs> which is a more scientific uh, term. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's when you attend conferences or when you talk with colleagues, there is always this huge section for uh, journals or for conferences, which is named lessons learned. <laughs> so our first attempt, this was back in uh, 2012, maybe. I know it was in this category, but this was uh, before I joined the, the laboratory. So I, I don't know much about the details about this one. Mm. So usually Formosa Files is a history podcast that doesn't really go past the year 2000 much. But when I heard your presentation, I was like, this is history in, you know, living <laughs> history. Because this is incredible that just a team from a university in Taiwan is now putting up stuff into space. So what do these things do up there? Oh, this is when it gets very interesting. First and foremost, the mission is uh, academic, like uh, to learn how to build. So, of course, you could just hire a bunch of engineers at the Taiwanese Space Agency, at TASA, and make the satellites if that was your only purpose. And they will probably do it uh, better and faster, more efficient. However, one of the most important missions for us is the, the learning, the teaching engineering students or uh, master engineering students or PhD engineering students, how to build, how to make, how to manage. So of course, then uh, it might take some more time to build a satellite, but at the end of the uh, satellite's project lifetime, now you have people who is able of building and working with this type of technology. So that's the most important uh, thing for us. Training the next generation. Yes, just keep training people here, yes, so that they're able to, to work with this type of technology. And then, like, uh, after the people, then it comes, like, the, the small systems. For those of uh, you listening out there, uh, if you're an engineer, then you know for sure that what it works on paper not always really works in real life. Mm. So, a lot of the time, we will build, uh, or some companies, they will like to build some small devices that they will like to, to use in space. And then part of their strategy is that they will first like to make a small model put it in one of our satellites, test it in space, see how it goes, see where it breaks, where it fails, how effective it is. And then once it, they have proven that it does work in a, on a small satellite, then they are able to build a bigger model or a better model that they are able to, to sell into the market. Mm. And I remember you talking about uh, cameras on them and how every iteration is getting better. Obviously, one of the best things about satellites is you're able to take pictures for weather or, you know, whatever reasons. But it's not quite as simple as people might think. Yes, uh, I think especially now that you like everyone has a camera in their cell phones right. and uh, you can just like take a picture and immediately upload to social media or whatever. <laughs> I think, yeah, this is a very obvious and easy process for you. But when you work in a satellite, you need to really connect this camera and then process all the data. And then the size of the picture matters because then you need to think about the frequency, the radio frequency in which you're going to be downloading this data. So how big can the file be? How good can the camera lens be? When you talk about the size of the camera, you also need to consider all the thermal variations that you have in space. 
because uh, if the camera lens, if the sensor is too sensitive to temperature changes, it will have these temperature changes and then the images will not work. The, the, the images will, will be all distorted. And then after you take this picture, then if, uh, for example, if, if you use like UHF or BHF to download the data, it will take you about one week or two weeks to download one simple picture. Really? Yeah, like uh, from the, the, the simplest camera that you, you, that you can uh, find in the market right now. It's about the size of a 50 NT coin. Uh. Yeah, it takes about one week to download this by UHF, BHF. So now that we have done this in the past, we're moving forward to using higher frequencies like the S-band to try to download some data. And in S-band, yeah, you can take a much better picture in uh, almost instantly. So right now the goal will be to try to take a picture while the satellite is on top of Taiwan and then receive the picture at the same moment. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot, uh, you know, as you can see, it's a lot faster than a very simple picture over two weeks. And cloud cover is obviously going to be an issue. It's always an Yeah, I think especially like, like in Taiwan. I remember when we used the first camera, a lot of the first pictures, we could only see like the Philippines <laughs> because they're a much wider uh, archipelago than Taiwan. And it was very difficult to, to actually try to capture Taiwan. And what we did is that we compared our pictures with pictures from, from other uh, weather satellites, uh, bigger satellites. And then we tried to, to compare the shape of the clouds at that time. And then we we're like, oh, here's where Taiwan is supposed to be under all these uh, clouds. And uh, I remember asking you during your presentation about, you know, there's a lot of stuff up there in space right now. And how do you not crash into other people or right. not people, but things? Right. So there's actually some institutes uh, like uh, NORAD. And uh, they just try to catalog and they, they, they use this uh, very fancy radar technology to try to detect every object that's in space right now. And basically, they just try to do some bookkeeping. I think usually there is enough space for all the satellites that, that are out there right now. Uh, as they move, like uh, some dynamic space, they all are moving. Uh, however, when they do realize that there might be a close proximity between two satellites, if it is your satellite, because uh, you need to apply for permissions and you need to apply for the right of being up there, then they will notify you. Like They know exactly whose satellite it is up there. They will notify you and then they will tell you what's the critical point that they have predicted in which it might be in very close proximity to another object in space. And then if you have the means, because this is a completely wild, new scientific uh, approach, like it's very difficult with these small satellites to try to, to change the orbit. Then if you do have the technology to do so, then maybe you might try to take some steps to try to avoid this uh, collision. Uh, has one ever happened? We have had a, a couple of these emails before. Yeah. That's how I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, so far, like... I mean, in our case, it would be like, well, if we don't listen to the satellite anymore, then we know what happened. <laughs> but uh, no, so far, I think it's been okay. And we are moving forward. Like I said, like part of the research now, right now, is uh, how to make these slight uh, orbital variations. Just because like, yes, as, as you mentioned before, the satellite is like a, like a rectangular prism. So depending on the position at which the satellite is flying, if it's uh, flying like an arrow, then it might have a, a slightly different orbit than if it's uh, if it's flying like flat mm. with the with the big surface to the front, 
then we're, we are doing some research to try to account for these small variations because this is something that we can do. We can point the satellite in whatever direction we want. So we could potentially use this to try to make these very small changes to try to avoid colliding with other satellites. Do they have like uh, fans or wings or some sort of a sail or? Yes, right now the amount of solar panels that we use, like they're deployable. So once it's in orbit, they look like wings. Mm. Uh, they're not intended as wings, mm. but if you face them towards the RAM direction, the, towards the orbital direction in which the satellite is moving, then yes, you can, I mean, basically you're uh, stopping, you're like breaking the satellite mm. very slightly, but it is enough to change the orbit, just enough to avoid any collision. So what's the end game here? What's the point of this? Uh, you know, with the ISS, they're doing medical research up there. Obviously, with other the bigger satellites, so they're spying on other countries. Or, you know, <laughs> But what's the oh. end goal for these small ones? What, or, or, or you don't know yet? You're doing this and just to find out what can be done? Well, yeah, like some technology is being developed. Say, for example, okay, from the movie Interstellar, I think a lot of people right now is more familiar with time dilation. Uh, a little when, bit, yeah. yeah. Okay, so when you work in space, usually time slows down for objects because they are far away from Earth's uh, gravitational field. Mm. So if you try to have a clock in the satellite, then you know how, how do you make sure like how much time is going forward or backward at uh, any given time? So one of the technologies that we have used and we put in one of our satellites is an atomic clock because we build it and in paper it works but then again like you really need to test it in space to see how well it does this was one of the experiments in one of the previous satellites and one of your satellites is already in a museum exactly i was very History. surprised yeah <laughs> and i honestly i felt a bit uh, old too to <laughs> you know to learn that we are already part of a, a museum exhibition like a permanent museum exhibition and this is in the gaoshong science and technology museum yes. uh, which is a great museum yeah <laughs> that's yeah. cool when it comes back uh, to earth it burns up in a fireball Yes, so the one at the museum is just a model. It's okay. Not the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the one we launched is already scattered in the atmosphere uh, right, as, uh, right. as uh, small atoms, yeah. But at that size, there's no way of, of bringing it actually back in. So we were working on a project where we will build a satellite and we will design it to survive this reentry process. Oh. That was my master thesis. For this, you had to have a second computer because you needed to isolate the computer, like, if everything's gonna burn, you need to make some very thick material to protect it. But the same material that protects it, if you turn on the computer inside this material, the computer itself is gonna burn. So you needed one computer to be in orbit, one computer to survive the re-entry and then transmit the... We were trying to measure the electron temperature and density at the ionosphere as the satellite, you know, it, it generates... It, it, it creates plasma from the atmosphere, from the atmosphere, yeah. So we are trying to measure the density and temperature of electrons at the plasma generated by the satellite as it re-enters Earth's atmosphere. And the attempt was to try to relay this data to, to a different satellite uh, telephone communication network to try to have this data access before it hit the ground. So some of them are built to try to survive this process. 
Wild. Yeah, but that's the exception. Yeah, usually they just uh, disintegrate and then you, yeah, they become dust. And for these experiments that you're doing, this sort of thing really is uh, the cheapest way of pulling this off. Yes. By yes. far. Uh, yes. The price will be comparable to like a luxury car. Mm. Like it's not like as an individual, you can like buy three of these every year. Mm. But as a university or as a small institution, you they're very affordable. So like a, a, a couple million NT. It takes for launching one unit right now. It's about 90,000 US dollars. Mm. Yes. Yeah, for, for I launching mean, one unit. Yeah, yeah, expensive for you and me, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by comparison. Yeah, 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 yeah. Does does Taiwan have anything special going for it that would make it a uniquely good place for doing these kind of things? I think what Taiwan has here is that it has a, a, a lot of uh, industry and a lot of infrastructure that it's easy to procure or to to buy to acquire any type of material or sensor or circuit or whatever you want to develop. It's uh, readily available here in Taiwan. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So when are you going to start uh, weaponizing these uh, satellites? <laughs> uh, <laughs> these ones are all like made for the for the public, for research purposes. Lasers? No space lasers? I know a company that they are specializing in lasers right now, but for communications. <laughs> because it's uh, a lot faster and they think that's the future. Uh, but Not Star Wars. Not Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for being on the program. And also thank you for, uh, just before we started recording, you gave me a Christmas gift. It's Guatemalan coffee. And you said you have a friend that imports it for, directly from Guatemala and then they roast it in Taiwan. Yes. Maybe I'll, I'll post it on, on the website. Okay, sure. Yeah. Sure, no problem. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, um, yes. Thank you for having me here. Uh, thank you for what you're doing for Taiwan as well. Yeah, I think I was just uh, in the right place at the right time. And I honestly think that anyone can be doing this right now. <laughs> uh, not me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much.